Hi everyone. This was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak. We hope everybody's staying safe and well. Welcome to the Boil Dow Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And I'm Miranda. Miranda, a singing co-host. Singing co-host for today. Miranda, the singing co-host. Indeed, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here today. I called you at the last minute. Sam couldn't make it. What's been happening with you? You went to New I, Orleans. I to New That's Orleans. what I want to talk about. I went about. to New Orleans this week for work. <laughs> for my first time in New oh, Orleans. Oh, you went for work? I went for, well, I went for work and stayed in the French Quarter. Oh, you did? I did stayed you? on Royal Street, which I didn't realize is parallel to Bourbon Street. I thought I stayed enough away from I Bourbon. I wish I was yeah. in New Orleans. I listened to Louis Armstrong almost the whole time I was there on my iPod. I really <laughs> wanted Tom to be part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I love Tom Waits too, yeah. but he's a yeah, new, buddy. I, I've been to New Orleans back when I was drinking. That Mm-mm. was, I mean, that no. was a long time ago. Woke up in the morning, and started the day with mimosas, champagne. It was like the way to start the morning. I didn't see anybody down there drinking that classy. I saw yeah, my right. first morning there. I walked outside and I was waiting for my ride, and so I figured I'd walk down Canal, and I saw someone walking with a purpose up canal with a beer in his hand at 7 30 in the morning didn't look like he was partying didn't have anyone around him and i thought if i had lived here i would have killed myself i it's too easy killed yourself killed myself drinking it's just just because you can do it everywhere it's so easy and it's you know i talked to a few people while i was there because i had a lot of feelings it is a yeah. magical city, and it yeah. is a dark city. They do was, not hide. Were you out their... at night? Did you go out yeah, at night? Yeah, so we... Um... I, you know, I don't know if it was my perception at the mm-hmm. time, but I've always called it the city of cleavage. I didn't see any of that. I mean, there's a that. lot of cleavage. Even though Mardi Gras <laughs> has unofficially started, it is um, parade season. We went to a restaurant off of Bourbon called Bourbon House, and it was... A wonderful uh, had oysters it was great you um, didn't have bourbon didn't have there was you know they had a big wall of really special bourbon but we actually sat in the dining room which looked exactly like it probably did a hundred years ago did um, you have any problems with not drinking while you were there i mean did it mess no, with you a little bit no no i wanted oysters um really <laughs> it didn't mess with me it did not look fun yeah there's, I did not see anything fun about it. And I guess that's just maybe because I can't relate my drinking to, um, a, a lot of fun anymore. Like I, I don't know that it would have been fun for me to, to drink there. I just truly yeah. believe if I had an opportunity to live in a place that would let me walk down the street any time of day with a drink in my hand, I would have taken it and I would have been dead, Yeah, you know, but just saw, yeah, that's, you know, well, you know when I was in Ireland, it wasn't that I wanted to drink so bad that mess it I, mm-hmm. it messed with me. Mm-hmm. It was that I felt like I was missing out on what was going on. 
watching yeah. the music, people playing music, and yeah. everybody drinking with that. So it was kind of like a feeling of missing out, and I re- I just had to get out of there. I think I think I have this vision of what of what my drinking was before you know eight o'clock at night hit, and I eventually became belligerent because there's just something about watching the staggering and just the the retching and the uh-huh. peeing and the well good you know, time that drinking. just good time like, you know I'm just like God that just doesn't look like fun you know and and the history major in me is looking at all these beautiful buildings in the cemeteries like i want to come back here and i want to see this and then the other part of me is like i don't want to come back here like this is not a great celebration of drink of drinking it's a celebration but then you have this flip side of people well maybe it's not well the (laughs) i did buy my beads my husband wanted to make sure i didn't earn the beads i bought my beads but it's you you see people who aren't on the streets for debauchery. You see the flip side of people who are in such poverty and homeless and addicted. And it's not, these aren't people that only come out at night. They're there Uh all day. So you see it all day. And it's just really, it's a beautiful, magical, very dark city. It has a dark energy to it. Um, Well, I'm glad you stayed sober. Oh, me too. But I got some oysters. Oh my God. And alligator. So good. It was good Good stuff. Good eatings. And beignets. Went to the Cafe Du Monde, had my beignets and my Cafe Olay, and uh, Woo. yeah. You flung a craving on me. I think I'll just have some coffee. I don't have any beignets. <laughs> well, we have a guest. We do have a guest. Introduce yourself. Well, my name is Andrea. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> All right. I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> is, is she an alcoholic or do we have a normie wandering yeah. off the street? Yeah. Oh, no, I've definitely earned this seat. <laughs> Welcome. When did you get sober? Um, I got sober on February 12th of 2016. It was the day before that I traveled to Greensboro to begin my stay at Fellowship Hall. It would go on for the next two months. Oh, you came for the treatment center. I did. I did. I Welcome to Greensboro. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> and, you know, it was so amazing I decided to stay. Where were you from? I came from Raleigh, but before that um, I was born in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And my family's from California, so I've also lived out there as well. So what was going on with you inside that made you decide to do something as drastic as quit drinking? Because, I mean, it takes a certain amount of uh, pressure mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to decide I'm actually going to do something about this. Well, it for me, it took actually thinking that I was going to die. Mm-hmm. The type of alcoholic I am, I have to exhaust every option of doing something my way. Mm-hmm. And I could not absolutely could not imagine my life without drinking. So it wasn't until I felt that I had to make that ultimate decision where I really thought death was imminent. In what way? So by the time that I... How are you going to die? I was drinking around the clock. I had gathered three DUIs under my belt, totaled a friend's car, and I had a warrant out for my arrest. I'm hiding out in an apartment, just terrified, not leaving my bedroom. It's not even my bedroom. I'm basically couch surfing. I have nothing, absolutely nothing. 
and the good time drinking. It was over. the mm-hmm. best yeah. time ever. I mean, I love how you've gathered. She yeah. gathered three DUIs. That's mm-hmm. the most beautiful way yeah. I've ever heard anyone put it. Gather. I gather them up like my flowers. Like flowers yeah. in the garden. Gather ye DUIs where you may. Gathering <laughs> the DUIs. It's it's so absurd looking back on it now. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I said the longer that I've gotten sober the harder it is to look at my past behavior. In what way? Because it, the insanity of it becomes more and more clear clear to me. The good thing about that is it does drive me to want to continue on this path of sobriety. So, Do you you find the longer that you're sober that the more clear it is that you were uh, addicted to it way earlier than you thought. I mean, that's what happened to me. It's like, it would be earlier and earlier and earlier. Oh, when I first started, I liked it too much. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost like, uh, because when in drinking, I, my whole thing was uh, minimizing how much I was drinking and pretending I wasn't drinking that much. And when you get sober, after you've been sober long enough, you've got to be <laughs> careful that you don't lie about how much I used to drink, you know, yeah. and maximize it for effect. But there's this period of time where I really was surprised. Uh, oh, I was an alcoholic years before. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that even if I didn't drink technically the amount of alcohol that I drank um, earlier on in my life, that feeling that it created for me. I mean, I remember waking up the next day after have you know going to a house party or something and uh, everyone would be kind of starting to get back into the normal routine of things, saying, oh, I've got to go to work, I'm going to go do this. The only thing I wanted was for that feeling to continue that I felt the night before. Even if I wasn't necessarily wasted or out of control, it was something about that, just that kind of joyous, carefree feeling that I would get that I just wanted it to continue into the next day. I didn't know why why anybody wouldn't want to just go right back to doing that. Why Mm -hmm. shouldn't you? Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so I interrupted you. You were describing the end of your drinking there. Mm -hmm couch surfing and and so you just felt that it would kill you were Mm -hmm. you like having physical problems i was having physical problems um just gagging Mm -hmm. every morning um and then just it it basically reached a point where i couldn't stop thinking about the problems i had caused Mm mm-hmm when I was drinking. So I wasn't getting that relief any the longer. The carefree is gone now. You're mm-hmm. just ruminating and sitting there and your wheels are spinning and shit. And yeah. Absolutely. And all I could think about was, so now, Fellowship Hall was not the first time I'd been to treatment. Oh. I'd been before because I wanted to not suffer as much of a punishment for my first DUI. And once I got the second. To get out of trouble. Exactly. So I, court helped you along into the... Others, okay. Yeah, well, I was never court-ordered, but mm-hmm. this was all my attempts at minimizing the consequences. Okay. And someone at the first treatment center I went to had, and they shared that their girlfriend had been drinking too much, and she stopped drinking, 
And she died 10 days later from, I think it was a seizure or something like that. And now I don't know what really (laughs) happened or what was true or not, but what I gathered from it, and I think the point that was being made was there's some serious health consequences. And just because I decide to stop drinking, it doesn't mean that there may be some kind of withdrawal symptom that mm-hmm. comes in, bites me in the ass, and you know something terrible can happen. So ever since I heard that, I, I used to think that, okay, well, even if I stop drinking, something might happen. So then it turned into this thing about- you gotta keep drinking. I, I, I gotta actually, keep drinking or I'll die. Exactly. And I actually ended up weaning myself off a little bit of alcohol before I went to Fellowship Hall. And part of it was because I think I didn't want to suffer such a horrible detox experience. Um, did that work? It did, actually. I, I don't remember feeling bad detoxing, but what I remember most is I could not stop shaking. Mm-hmm. I could not wow. write properly. I remember that we had... Because this, of your thinking? You couldn't get... the that think or you I couldn't, couldn't write because I couldn't you're think, shaking. I couldn't color inside lines. I'd be walking. Wow. I would walk into things. Mm-hmm. I would just trip over my own feet while walking. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had no idea that it was that wow. it was that bad. But I will say, I remember when I was living in San Francisco, which is when my drinking got really bad. It was so available every mm-hmm. corner and all throughout the night. They sold liquor at the corner store across from like my apartment. Kind of like New Orleans. Yeah, and they I was thinking. Da- they have drive through daiquiri stands. No <laughs> bullshit. Yeah, I believe it. And it, I was really thinking about that mm-hmm. as you were sharing about your trip. Some cities just want you to come there and just <laughs> end it all. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's what just it feels end like. It all. Come end it all in San Francisco and or New Orleans. Yeah. Boy. Well, I remember having to lean against the mirror to put my mascara on because my hands were shaking uh-huh. so badly. I mean, that's just nuts to me now. It I is. mean, it yeah. is it's so nuts that daily, to this mm-hmm. day I I do things. And for such a long time I had told people that I just had a problem shaking. I think I actually believed it that yeah. you yes. know daily I do things and I look at myself and I'm not shaking and yeah. I think, "Huh, ain't that yeah. funny?" I I used to tell people I had, um, because my hands shook all the time, all the time. And um, I just figured I had bad nerves because I do kind of, I have bad nerves, but not. You don't want it to be that. You you don't want it to. Well, no, I mean, I never in a million, because I thought that was from having DTs. And I'll never forget, like six months sober, my mom sees that my hands aren't shaking anymore. And she goes, your hands aren't shaking. And I said, no, my hands don't shake anymore. She started sobbing. And it finally occurred to me like, whoa, holy shit, people saw uh-huh. Me shaking all the time. Wow. Sometimes worse than others. But I'm um, a painter, yeah. a house painter, and one time the designer uh, on the job said, Don, why are your hands shaking like that? Because I had to paint straight lines. Oh, God. But, <laughs> cannot imagine. But I found that if I'd rest my little finger against the wall, then I could... That would steady my mm-hmm. hand, and I could pull the brush yeah. down straight. And so, so, I, you know, I worked out a system with it. Yeah. and. You know what I told her? It's too much coffee. Yeah. And or the stress from having to hold my hand up straight, I, you know? I believed it was too much you coffee. You believed the lie. Yeah. Yep. I remember going to the bar and having to... I started ordering um, a beer first instead of ordering a Jameson Neat 
or double Jameson neat, which is what I would order. Because I couldn't get the little rocks glass up to my mouth Mm -hmm. without spilling it. But if I got a beer first, the beer was heavy enough that it would kind Mm -hmm. of counterbalance the, the shaking yeah. And so once I could get a little bit of that the beer tiny glass down, was too light. I could I then I could the shaking would subside enough that it wouldn't be so obvious that I was because I've I've caught a few bartenders noticing me try yeah. to get that yeah. sh- that basically little shot glass up to my mouth without spilling and wow. It's shameful feeling. It's a shameful feeling. It's embarrassing. It is. Yeah. But you know at that in that moment there's and no other option. It's embarrassing and shameful. But it's alcoholism. That's yes. what alcoholism is. Because someone who's not an alcoholic is not going to get to that point. Exactly. Because if, you, if there's, they'll quit. I'll never we forget the quit. first time I, well, the only time I, I had to go to detox, there was, I think I share this much older gentleman in there, and he was detoxing as well, and his hand shook so bad that he couldn't light a cigarette. So I used to light his cigarettes for him, and he would let me use his lighter to light my, don't even think they let you smoke there anymore. I cannot imagine yeah. that. And I think I was, I was 20 years old, and I may not have fully understood what was happening with him that he couldn't light his own cigarette. Maybe I thought he had Parkinson's or something, but it was his alcoholism. Yeah. He was detoxing yeah. and his hands were, I'll never forget that. When I got sober, I didn't go to a treatment center and I just walked in and I didn't, and I was surprised when I started shaking after a day. I actually had a guy uh, look at me and said, do you want a cup of coffee? And I was, and I said, <laughs> Yeah, because I wanted one, but I didn't want to go get one yeah. because I was shaking so bad. And he came back with half a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Thoughtful as could be because I was like, oh, he's going to bring a full cup of coffee. And now I'm not going to be able to drink it because I won't be able to get it up to my lips. Yeah. So I was surprised at that because I didn't think I was that bad of an alcoholic. It did me good to, <laughs> to help me realize how bad the disease is and how much I had it because I heard people talk about to drink is to die and I thought that was hyperbole oh absolutely I I didn't believe that it was real yet I have seen people in the parking lot outside of a meeting I saw a guy fall down have a seizure Mm -hmm. from not drinking it's absolutely real it's absolutely true yeah I did not believe um, and the reason why I, I said, you know, I was ashamed and embarrassed is I literally did not believe in alcoholism. And I didn't even know that I didn't believe in it. And maybe it wasn't so much that I didn't believe in it, but I didn't know what it was. Because I didn't, I think I still associated it with some kind of decision people were making. And oh. that they weren't strong enough to choose to get better or... Mm-hmm. I mean, or they the sh- were just so depressed or sad they couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. Or- Hence the shame. Absolutely. They should be able to do it. And, and that I think that was the shame I was feeling. And I share a lot about the moment when I was in treatment and I realized I was an alcoholic was a, a series they showed called uh, Chalk Talk with mm-hmm. um, Father-, Father Martin. Mm-hmm. And... He's explaining very delicately and yet methodically, you know, the difference between 
normal drinkers and alcoholics are that when normal people drink too much and something bad happens, they usually change their behavior. They don't <laughs> drink for a while or they there's some other situation they have to address, what, what have you. Um, but they usually don't end up repeating the same type of drinking or the same type of behavior over and over again. But for alcoholics, he defined alcoholism as the state that someone has or is, or is in when they they drink and something bad happens and they continue to do it. But as they continue to do it, the length of time between bad things that happen gets shorter and the severity of the things that happen becomes worse. And for some reason, that clicked with me. Mm-hmm. Because that's exactly what happened to me. You could see that. The time between my first DUI and my second DUI was longer than the time between my second and my third. Mm -hmm. And everything that was bad that happened started happening closer in time, and it was worse. And it just kept getting worse. It, It just clicked with me, and I... I remember after the session or the group session was over, I went back to the room and I looked in the mirror and I looked in my at my face, I think for the first time in years, and I just started bawling. And I had not cried, I don't think, for a few years. Mm-hmm. So that was the moment where I really saw myself and I came clean to myself at what was really going on. And when we talk about being in delusion it's different to me, I think, than denial. Like, I, it wasn't, I heard people talk about, I've always known I was an alcoholic and Mm-mm. I just couldn't, you know, I just didn't want to give it up. Like, I really, t- at my core, did not believe that, that I didn't have a choice. I could not accept that. Mm-hmm. So I really was living in a delusion and call it a moment of clarity or the grace of God. It was in that moment that I was able to recognize that. So I'm, I'm truly grateful for mm-hmm. that. And did that feel like a positive thing, or was it just? Oh shit! It, yeah, was, it can be both. Well, you know? I'll tell you what happened after that. Is for some reason the the halls at the hall seemed to be empty. I don't know what everyone was doing back in the rooms. I I gather after the sessions had gotten out, and I was I remember just wandering around frantically looking for someone and I finally found this lady Judy that worked there and I I said Judy I need to talk to you I'm an alcoholic <laughs> and, <laughs> and Welcome. she said oh, that's Andrea I I know and I said no but you don't understand I I'm really an alcoholic I figured it out <laughs> And it was such a a revelation to me. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't upset about it. And I think because it made sense. All of a sudden, it made sense. And it was the biggest weight lifted off of me. There is so much relief whenever you finally are like, shit, because you you stop fighting. I mean, the, the... you know, yeah. the first thing that comes is is the bumblebee story. Like I love that story, but What's it's that? the bumblebee story. This this was my moment of clarity was in um the Unity Club at the candlelight meeting, and I heard someone say this bumblebee is telling the bumblebee story, and it's this bumblebee that's stuck in a car, and he keeps like just kind of 
running into the window, running into the window, running into the window. And the person telling the story, you know, says he put his hand out and the bumblebee just kind of sat down in his hand and he opened the window and it flew away because it quit busting its head. It just laid back and relaxed and then it was free. And I don't know why that, that hit me. It, it hit me so hard because it was like, I have been running headfirst into a brick wall for years mm. trying to figure this out. And I had been in AA probably a few months at that point. So I was feeling that relief and I finally, it clicked. I'm like, the moment I quit fighting, I started you're, to find freedom. You're both talking about giving up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Giving up the fight. Absolutely. So did things change for you from that point? Or well, did you take it back again? Like uh, what I'm thinking is, okay, I realize I'm an alcoholic, but oh shit, look mm-hmm. at what they want me to do. They want me to believe in God for one, <laughs> two, yeah. make amends to people I've harmed. I know mm-hmm. that's, I can read the steps. Look I can at, see look that Look at up there. what I've done. Write, write that fourth step. Yeah, and and write that fourth mm-hmm. These are difficult things to do. So did you have willingness from that point? Do you think that was really your point of surrender, or is there another point that was? That was definitely that was my it. point of surrender. The only way I can describe it is that I, I literally put myself in, in the care of AA. I guess maybe not even God at that point. I didn't recognize that that's what I was doing, but I believed in what people were sharing with me. I believed that when I saw people that worked at the hall that seemed happy and healthy, Mm -hmm. that they had been through similar experiences as me. I just, I believed it and I went with it. I didn't worry about my inventory. I didn't worry about the ninth step. No, you did. I just just wanted to get better, and I wanted the madness to stop, and I truly believed that there was a solution. Mm -hmm. You were willing to get sober someone else's way. That's exactly it. it. I was was willing to try it someone else's way, and it was a little bit of – I had that willingness started in that nasty apartment room – where I, I just said, you know what, clearly I can't. I'm not getting anywhere with this, and I'm going to die. I wasn't even thinking about drinking at that point. I was, to me, I was almost just in mental health-wise committing myself to a treatment center. I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about quitting drinking at that mm-hmm. point, uh, quitting or not quitting or, or what have you. And I, I just didn't want to die, and I didn't know what to do. So as soon as I, I think I stopped worrying about if I was ever going to drink again, and I truly did just stay in the day, mm-hmm. that's when I was able to stop and see it. When I, when I could just sit back, as you were kind of saying, sit back, take some time, be present, and think about what was going on in the day, and not worry about what was going to go on in the future. Mm-hmm. And... I believed I was the shittiest manager of my own life. How can somebody who has so much um, promise and education and whose family has been so supportive and sacrificed for them, how can somebody, how does somebody get three DUIs? How does that happen? I mean, you. You didn't dream of yourself living on couches, friends' couches. 
Well, no, it's I mean, not your something we, we grow up thinking as all of a sudden it's, it's happening. I mean, I, I know someone who I love to pieces and he's a much older gentleman. And we were standing outside uh, the Saturday night meeting one night and uh, he was talking to me about um, all the traveling that he had done, that he'd driven to Alaska and he'd driven here and he'd driven there. And he goes, you know, that's not bad for someone who thought he'd never get his license back. I had eight DUIs. Mm. And I'm like, eight DUIs? You Must know, have been a long time ago. Now he, he'd be in prison. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One. I mean, these were back in like 60s and 70s. He, <laughs> yeah. was, he was a much older gentleman. Yeah. He was probably in his 80s. But I, I love what you said, you know, about the what happens, you know, between this DUI and that DUI and how we react differently. Because when I got pulled and I didn't get a DUI, I just got pulled and was, we're not going to go into that. But my answer to that wasn't, I need to stop drinking and driving. It was, I live close enough to the bars. I'm just going to walk, you know, and I did walk. I walked, I walked in the snow or I drove up there because I need to stop driving downtown. I need to drive closer. So it's almost like our our answer is almost worse, <laughs> you know, than, than what the issue is. You know, it's like there's a bug in the house. Let me set the house on fire. You yeah, know, in order anything, to take care anything of it. but actually look anything at the real problem. Anything but actually <laughs> looking at the, what the real problem is. So, yeah, I, I love yeah. that. Yeah. So, Andrea, what's you, you got out of treatment. You've been sober now. What, what's something that happened um, in your recovery that's been pivotal? I think that, well, from the beginning... I think what's been pivotal um, about my recovery versus just my life before and we talked about it or you touched on it before is taking suggestions. So, well, after I completed the inpatient treatment at Fellowship Hall, I decided to stay. They had a women's house on campus. So I took that suggestion and I stayed. I actually wanted to do, I thought I needed the extended care. Um, it was It was a little pricey and they said I actually didn't, they didn't think I needed that, but they did suggest I stayed at the at Hazel's house. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and then I list, I took another suggestion. I went to an Oxford house, and so I just kept taking suggestions. And I'll tell you, just knowing that I wasn't creating more problems for myself was probably what gave me the most serenity I had felt in a long time. It didn't matter as much that all those problems were out there that I still had to deal with. It was more to me that I could lay my head down at night and know that I wasn't adding to it and that I was trying, I was doing the right thing to try to not add to it or make it better. So that actually brought me to a pivotal moment in my recovery which was when I went to court for sentencing for my, they had put together my second and third DUI. By this time, I had a public defender and I thought, you know, I'm just going to put my faith in God. I'm going to get a public defender. Everything's going to be okay. Um, I hadn't really shared about the legal problems I had in any meetings. I don't think I actually shared at all. I talked to some people in my home group about it, talked to my sponsor about it. But I never, I just didn't make it a thing. Um, I didn't want, I think, I didn't want people to think I was trying to get attention for it, really. So I just kept it quiet and I just prayed about it. And when I went to court um, after, I think I had almost a year sober and I had done a lot. In my mind, I had, you know, moved mountains with my sobriety. Mm -hmm. I mean, internally, mountains had moved. But what happens when you... 
you know, go to a treatment center and you've moved somewhere new and you're, you stay in this new place and everyone sees, you're with the people that have seen the strides you've made, you know, that doesn't mean that the world is ready to accept that you've made changes um, or even understand what kind, that those changes can actually happen. So I, um, I ended up getting reamed by the judge and my mom was there and um, actually he went on like a 20 minute rant mm. and ended up sentencing me to two years in, I can't remember if it was jail or prison, but all I remember it was, it was two years and the judge said, I just hope that you can get some help. And it was clear to me that he hadn't, you know, I had this stack of letters mm-hmm. and things and all that. He didn't look at it and called my mom out in the courtroom, basically. Um, didn't say directly to her, but said, you know, I bet when you were born and your mom was holding you, this is not how she imagined you were going to turn out. Wow. wow. He was angry. Yeah. And um, it was, it was so, it was just, I don't, I can't even correctly or accurately describe all the emotions I was having at that moment. Did you scream at him? I, w- I looked, I kept looking back at my mom because she was hysterical. Mm. At this time, I really didn't even, I wasn't even thinking about myself. I really was mm-hmm. thinking about her. Mm-hmm. And I had spent that year really, um, I had been told I was going to go to jail. I didn't think any miracles were going to happen for me. And I just, I had kind of, gotten to a place where I was at peace with it. But just because I was, you know, the hurt and the pain and everything was still very real with my family. And to this day, I know that it's still there. They're so happy that I'm sober and everything. But, and I've been sober for a few years, but my mom was driving me home and her hands were shaking on the steering wheel she had to pull over because she was so upset. And she kept saying, if I could go for you, I would. And that was, that was just huge for me. And that time in my recovery, um, I had been part of a, a support, a professional support group as well. Um, and I hadn't told them. It, so I guess this is why this, this time is pivotal for me is that this was a place in my recovery that I came to where I thought I had been asking for help. And I realized that I really hadn't been asking for help. I mean, I got, I asked for help to get sober, but I hadn't then continued to ask for help and I hadn't leaned on people. I hadn't really shared what I was going through. And when I told the professional um, support group what I was going through, they said, how could you not tell us? You know, why did you not get a lawyer? We would have helped you. Why, you know, and it really wasn't until then that I, realized that I was still trying to take care of everything by myself. Mm -hmm. And it just hit me so hard. And I saw it in everyone's face that they were just so surprised that for a year I'd been talking to them and I hadn't hadn't let them in on what was going on um, and how severe it was. So asking for help has probably been the greatest challenge that I've had. I know it has a lot to do with my pride and my ego. um, So it's just something that I, that I work on, but that was, 
that was really just a huge smack in the face for me. It was a huge shift in how I viewed the way I was handling my life and my recovery. I don't know if anyone can identify with that. But I mean, I, 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 my, I have questions. I do too. But, but what, what I want to say is, so we were talking before we started, is me and you share like a day apart in sobriety. So you just celebrated four years and I just celebrated nine years, which is balls ass crazy to me. I still have that problem. And my friends can get livid with me if you're listening. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But the joke is, is that Miranda comes to us after it's over. You know, so if I have problems going on in my job, in my marriage, in my, in my, in my own little brain and whatever, I still, and I am to a point now where I realize I probably always will have to put effort into reaching out because it is about more than me not drinking. You know, I, I stay well and I, I, I stay serene from a spiritual life, but also from learning how to be open and honest with other people and releasing the reins on my own life and still remembering sometimes doing it someone else's way is, is the best thing. Even if that means just picking up the phone and calling my friends and saying, I'm struggling right now with A, B, C, or D. So you saying that, yes, I mean, holding you know, things super close to the vest. And then you pop up and say, by the way, I was suicidal this year. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? It's, that's still a struggle. Yeah. Did it, you go to jail? Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to know, go, did you go to prison? Get to that. I, we're going to get to that. But I got I to say the, uh, what happened to me recently, well, the, well, a few years ago. I mean, it's hard to ask for help. And the longer you're sober, well, then it's still the same problem. Uh, just being sober doesn't make that go away mm-hmm. because then you don't want to bother people because you feel like you should. It happens to me. I feel like I, sh- should, I should be more developed now. spiritually than this. Yeah, right. But uh, <laughs> You've only been sober, what, 150 years? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I had surgery, major surgery, and I'm a member of a Quaker meeting. The church group said, well, do you want us to put you on the list for bringing food? And I was going, no, don't do that. I mean, don't, I don't need you to do that. What? I know. I what is wrong with so, you? So they did anyway. <laughs> they put me on the list anyway. And I can't tell you what it meant to have mm-hmm. like six people come over to the house and bring meals for six days. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of being cared for how wonderful it was i didn't want to ask for it i did mm-hmm. i felt like it would be too selfish yes i don't think also that i really deserved any yeah. more help than that and i thought you know i don't have any money this is this is what it is this must be kind of in god's plan because you know, this is what these these lawyers are here. These free... you're figuring out God's plan yeah, exactly. on your own. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's exactly what I was doing. And um, you know, when we talk about doing it someone else's way, and you know, thinking, well, the problem's still the problem, even if I share it with someone. I won't know that there's another way. I won't think of another way unless I share it. So I can't do it someone else's way, really, unless I share it. So, you know, once I started opening up about what had happened and it turns out that one of my buddies suggested for me to hire or talk to an, an attorney that I went to private school with in Raleigh. It was 
kind of one of those God moments for me. And I thought, here I am in Greensboro, and the first person that someone thinks, hey, why don't you call this guy, see if he can help you, turns out to be someone I've known for 20 years. Yeah, well, things fall into place. Absolutely. Can. And I called, and, and you know, I was embarrassed. In my mind, I, I felt like everyone else seems to have just gone on and become so successful, and here I am, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I kind of buttoned it up and made the call, and I was able to get some help and and work out a payment plan and such, which I'm still <laughs> paying on. But it turns out that that attorney did tell me, you know, it's going to be a stretch. But at the end of the day, I did get my miracle, and I got a, a reduced sentence. He found um, a sentencing error, and it, it turned out to be something so crazy that I don't blame the public defender for not catching it. It was very nuanced. But I ended up doing like six or seven weekends in jail, and uh, I had to go. It was quite an adventure. I had to go to Raleigh every other weekend, and <laughs> it was it was something else. But I never really thought that that could happen to me. I didn't think I, I don't think I thought I deserved that kind of a break. I thought that miracles could happen for other people, but it wasn't going to happen for me. And at the end of the day, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I had accepted that it was going to be okay if I had to go. Mm-hmm. And I had made peace with that. And, and it would have been okay, I think. But I didn't, you know, I didn't let anyone in. I didn't reach out. And when I did, I was very surprised at, at how different everything turned out. And so I do try to, to work on that um, daily, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't share every little piece of everything I'm going through with people. But one thing that has come from that is I've, that experience, I've been able to be there for some other people who have been going through similar situations because that for me was so important. The first time I heard, I heard a guy say he had three DUIs at a meeting that it was like, that was all I was waiting for. Please, somebody just tell me that you, you're, you're happy and your life is okay. And you have what, what I went through because no Mm. one, I didn't feel like, it's not that I felt like I had it worse than anyone else, but I felt like for a lot of people, I assume they could just put down the drink and go through this program, but they didn't have these legal troubles following them. And I felt like <laughs> I felt so alone in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really, yeah. there aren't that many people that I met that I have met that have that many DUIs. And it, so I just thought that there was no coming back from that until I oh, heard somebody share about it and how they were they found freedom and they were happy in their life and how everything turned out. So I only talk about, I I talk about it so much because it really was the biggest barrier, I think, for me. And my drinking got so much worse once I got in trouble. I wasn't the type that said, you know, oh, I got a DUI. I must, I must have a problem. I don't want this to happen again. I need, I need help. I just drank more. Mm -hmm. I, that just, made everything worse yeah i just feel like if i could help someone you know and and tell them as bad as you think it is you know Mm -hmm. i've i've felt like that that's the gold that's where 
the line that seems so strange to people who are not in AA that will not regret the past nor wish to turn the door on it is that when I can meet someone who is in terrible pain and turmoil over something that they've done Mm -hmm. or something that they're going through, and I have been through that and come out on the other side, then I'm able to help them with it. And when I can help someone with it, it changes it into a not a blessing, but it's kind of a blessing in a way. A, it's a like bit. I can. Your your well your your biggest pain or your biggest whatever turns into your asset. your greatest asset. Like yes. the things that we've done turn into assets that we can then go, you know, help other people with. Like I've never got you know, a DUI. And I always feel like an asshole saying that in meetings where I know plenty of people who have. I haven't and I don't think either, my, no. my husband wouldn't mind me saying this. My husband has too. And when I met him, he rode a scooter and he lived in his parents' basement. Love you, honey. You know, <laughs> I've heard people say we quit drinking, we slam on brakes and all the shit from the back of the van comes rushing up to the <laughs> oh, front God. of the van. And the next thing you know, you're stuck, you've stopped, but all you're sitting in yeah. all of this shit. Mm-hmm. And I loved you saying you're not making any more issues, but we've still got to handle our own issues and, and watching him go through the process of dealing with court and dealing with the blow and go and dealing with the money and dealing with, the, you know, it is a lot. And not just from that, but just stressful. Am I going to jail? So, yeah, sitting here watching you talk about it and watching your face, really. Like, I can feel that's a hell of a lot of turmoil. But on the other hand, and the reason I asked you, did you scream at him, is because you reacted differently. You stayed sober through that. I don't know how serene you may have been through that, but you stayed sober through that. That says a hell of a lot. You know, that can be the power of this program is even whenever we have a judge, you know, ripping our asses apart, we can still stand there and not throw something because honestly, listening to you, I kind of wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it might have made it worse, though. I, it, it, may, <laughs> it may have made it worse, you know, and, tam- tantrum. and good on you how this program. Well, can we got to wrap this up. I think I we don't need want to. to go find that judge. And kick his ass. Have a talk. Have a look. My grandfather was the judge, and he was a drunk too. In fact, he, he he got a few DOIs of his own. So yeah. Well, the good news is that it does get better. People told me that, and it was true. In my experience, it is it has always been true that when I take suggestions, it gets better. Even if I don't see it at first, it gets better. So I try to try to stay open and honest, and I just try to pass that on to my sponsees. So. Thanks for having me. Well, we're not quite finished. Oh, we're not quite finished. Protect your head Uh because I see the shadow of a foul. I see a foul shadow circling around. (laughs) It's time for our old timer's question. Who you calling an old timer? You, as usual. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well, no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, Missy. <laughs> you can post a question for us on boiledalaa.org. Who runs AA? Who runs AA? Who runs AA? I mean, nobody. It, nope, nobody. <laughs> nobody. Nobody. Nobody.
It's an interesting question because mm-hmm. when when I first came in, I wondered like you look at the meeting and, the, and you think the guys, whoever or, or, or girl who's sitting at the front who's the is boss, the president of AA or something, mm-hmm. or, or people can act like they're the president of AA, mm-hmm. and it's like oh that guy must be the one running yeah. the meeting, but um, but it's not the case. It's the most amazing setup in that it's run from the groups. The people, like the members in the groups run AA. Mm-hmm. Meetings are run by a group. It doesn't have to be. There can be a meeting that doesn't have a group doing it. So mm-hmm. that's I think that can make it confusing. But mm-hmm. generally, well, the way it really should be run is that there's a group who puts on me- AA meetings. Mm-hmm. And so the AA meetings are the top of AA. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> and very then ground level the, grassroots. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the group mm-hmm. which organizes the meetings. And then the group, there's a district. Mm-hmm. And then the district, there's We send our representatives. Each group sends someone to the district. To the district. So the groups are represented. And then the district gets together and has monthly meetings mm-hmm. and the representatives are there carrying the group conscience mm-hmm. of the groups and it, decisions are made and it take, goes back to the home group and asks them, well, what, should we do this? Should we do that? And votes are taken. So then the district is, and then the district makes decisions and then that goes to the area area and then the area goes up and I'm not, I'm going to get lost uh, here. It just, you know, we, so we essentially just keep sending representatives, but we, there is not one all high and mighty AA member who sits in a corner office. Yeah. Right. That's the, not how and it that, works. there's New York and that's the office that you could, then mm-hmm. a normal structure would be the top, but mm-hmm. it's actually the bottom Yeah. and all their decisions are being made by all the people underneath. Yeah. We, we call so, them New York, but essentially we're telling them what to do. AA is run by the members mm-hmm. of the group. Yeah, and always That's has who been, it is. which is wild if you think about how we survived for so long with people who are as we are with ego and pride and dysfunction galore, how we've managed for so long to well, keep it, it, it the it way that it is. It works. It, it absolutely does. works, and it's letting go of control mm-hmm. and and giving it to the group. And you, you, what it is is higher powers running it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the way that it it's really looks. Is. It's like individuals let go and make decisions based on not on self, but for the best uh, for the whole group. And that's, that's for me, that's where God is. That's higher power. So who runs AA? God. God. <laughs> Which is scary. <laughs> no, God. Wait a God or, I mean, but even, you know, you can still see some people every now and then, and I've probably been guilty of this, you know, try to not get controlling, but maybe up on a little bit of a high horse. And so you have other members of the group yeah. kind of pulling you back saying, okay, hey, wait. It's got kind of like anonymity. That's what the, yeah. the the basis of anonymity is I've to keep our egos out yeah. of it. Yeah. I am first and foremost an alcoholic. I'm not Miranda the the professional or the the actress. I'm not an actress, but you know, name anything. The first thing I am is an alcoholic and that's what bonds all of us is, yeah. is that. But I mean, my God, I definitely thought that whenever I first got to AA, you know, there were people who had more sobriety than me and spoke more spiritually than me. So I was like, well, obviously they're the leaders. Like they're mm-hmm. the ones who kind of corral us all. And I was dead wrong. 
you know, I was absolutely wrong. Yeah, I've, I've put people on pedestals, pedestals for sure. And it's really important for me to remember that we are all still alcoholics and we are all still human. And I've seen people with many years of sobriety make mistakes that I thought, how is that possible? Oh, and, yeah. you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, we all we all just have today. And, you know, that was my bad for placing that kind of expectation on someone that so many years of sobriety means they're not no longer capable of, mm-hmm. of uh, making any kind of mistakes, you know. So we're all just uh, in it together. And I think we can all learn from each other, especially newcomer. That's been a lesson I've learned I remember one time year. there was a, Definitely. I can't remember what the thing was that this group that I was in, something came up and it's really hot problem that's like <laughs> something should be done about this they're not following the traditions and a member of the group wrote to new york and said you know what what should we do about this this group is not following the traditions they got a letter back that said uh figure it out we have found that if you're dissatisfied with a group you should form another group mm-hmm and that is how there are so many AA groups. <laughs> <laughs> so almost all groups, all groups are split were, off were from another group. From someone getting pissed off with another group. It's a resentment is, and a coffee pot, and you got a new new group. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's I've seen this happen so many times, and and I have gone to groups probably in my first five years of sobriety. I've gone to groups, and I on my bleeding deacon horse did not like what I was seeing, and I would be told then go to another group. You don't have to go to that group. You know, it. this might work for them and not yeah. for you. And that's, I don't have the answers. It's not AA by Miranda. And I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to hear something. Someone's going to say something that I might not particularly like. But it actually might help me. So maybe sometimes I just need to or shut up. Or it might help somebody it else. It might help somebody else, you know. It might Who not the be about knows? you. <laughs> Bullshit. It is always about me. I know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Andrea, thanks for being here yes, today. Yes, thank you. Thank this you for having wonderful. me. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email hoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Sam was in Palm Springs. Yeah. Isn't he moving to Palm Springs? He is moving to Palm Springs probably sometime in May. I know. I know it sucks. I'm against it. I am against it. He knows I'm against it. Yeah, he's moving over there where they just... Lying in the sun, exactly. loving Looking like a damn postcard. You know, it's hard yeah. to be like, you shouldn't move there. And he shows photos and it's like, yeah, well, it's hot. <laughs>